Hi, my name's Rowan, one of the pastors here at Auckland EV. One of the most common questions I get asked as a Christian is, how can you believe in God when there's so much pain and suffering in the world? We don't have to look far, do we? Countries on the brink of war, global pandemics, earthquakes, tsunamis, poverty, injustice. My guess is that somewhere along the line, bad things have happened or are happening to you as well. Be that sickness, the sting of a broken relationship, or the gut-wrenching anguish of, of losing someone you love. Surely this isn't the way it's meant to be. Now I have to confess, I haven't seen that much suffering in my life. When I was 16, I needed brain surgery to, to correct a kind of blockage that was in my brain. Um, Sarah and I, in our first pregnancy, had an ectopic pregnancy and I had to have that removed. But really, they're just small amounts of suffering compared to many of you here, compared to many across the globe. Now, I don't know your story. I don't know everything that's going on for you. But I bet some of you feel like you're, you're going through hell. Now, I can't know how you feel, but I can pray for you. And what I wanted to do as we talk through this subject of suffering right now is to pray for you. So why don't we pray? Father God, thank you that you are not silent. We recognize that you do speak on this issue of suffering. And today, as we think through why bad things happen to good people, we ask that you would show us yourself and show us your love and show us the hope that you bring. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, in this series, we've been asking the big questions of God, life, and the world. And you'd be right to ask, why do bad things happen to good people? For many of us, that's the question that causes us to doubt or to disbelieve God. I mean, what sort of God would allow suffering and evil if he had the power to stop it? And so, understandably, people come to the conclusion that because there's suffering and evil in the world, either God is not good, that is, he has the power to stop it, but he chooses not to. Or God's not in control. He wants to stop it, but he can't. And who wants to follow a God that's not good or in control? No one. Now, at face value, this sounds like a good argument. It's actually got all sorts of problems. You see, the existence of suffering and evil can't prove or disprove the existence of God. Let me say it again, because it's important. The existence of suffering and evil can't prove or disprove the existence of God. And I want to show you two reasons why. Firstly, the argument that God can't be good if he allows suffering and evil assumes that if evil and suffering appear pointless to me, there's no point to it, then it must be pointless. But just because we can't come up with a good reason why God might allow something to happen doesn't mean there can't be one. In the book of Genesis, the first book of the Bible, we meet a man named Joseph. He's a bit of a dreamer. And because of that, his brothers hated him. They hate him so much and the way he kind of was favored by his father that they throw him into a pit and then sell him into slavery. Now, if you're watching and you've got brothers and you're a little bit young, I wouldn't suggest this as a kind of way to move forward with kind of tantrums in the family. Now, I'm pretty sure Joseph at this point would have prayed and asked God to stop it. But there's no help. Into slavery he went. Now, if we were to pause this story right there and then when he was sold into slavery, you just got to say, what a terrible and tragic evil. Brothers that sell their own brother into slavery, that is not right. But that's not where this story ended. Though Joseph experienced pain and misery, he was refined and strengthened and eventually, through a series of kind of funny reactions, became the prime minister of Egypt. He saved Egypt and the descendants of Abraham and his family and countless others from death in famine. Years later, when he's in this role of prime minister, 
his brothers came begging for food, not realizing who Joseph really was, who this prime minister really was. And Joseph says these words in Genesis 50 verse 20. You intended to harm me, but God intended it for good to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. See, if God didn't allow the years of suffering, Joseph never would have been in Egypt and never been given the position of authority that saw so much good come from it. See, there's a general principle in life that success generally comes through hardship. You've heard it, right? No pain, no gain. With time and perspective, most of us can see good reasons for at least some of the tragedy and pain that occurs in life or good things that come from it. So here's my question. Why couldn't it be possible that from God's point of view, there are good reasons for all the suffering that exists? To claim that there are no good reasons, it's incredibly arrogant. It's saying that if I can't see any reason behind some apparent events and suffering, then it must be wrong for God to have allowed it. Now, I want to be clear. I'm not trying to say that this proves God exists, nor am I saying that what the brothers did to Joseph was okay. But it opens up a logical possibility that there's more going on in this world than what we can see at the immediate moment. The claim that the existence of suffering and evil means that God does not exist, it's nowhere near as strong as some make it out to be. But secondly, the arguments against God rely on the fact that the world seems so cruel and unjust, that suffering is wrong. And we go, why is there so much suffering in the world? If there was a good God, there wouldn't be suffering. But where do we get our idea of what is just and unjust from? Like, if God doesn't exist, justice is just my own private idea. It doesn't apply to anyone else. If God doesn't exist, there's there's no such thing as a concept of universal justice. But the very fact that humanity has such a strong sense of right and wrong and of justice, the very fact that, you know, I've got a problem with the injustices of the world, points us to the probability that there is a universal set of right and wrong. That there is someone who sets that. That perhaps putting every human being stitched into the fabric of who we are, there is this sense of what is right and wrong. Well, the word for that person is God, our maker, the one who made us. And the person who uses suffering and injustice to disprove God is actually using an argument that moves them closer to the existence of a good God. You see, if there was no God and we're all just a product of random events and natural selection, then what would our basis be to say something is evil or wrong? The evolutionary mechanism of of natural selection depends on death and destruction and violence of the strong against the weak because it's the survival of the fittest. And if there's no God, then evil and suffering are perfectly natural. What right do we have to say that that they are wrong? (laughs) Horrifying wickedness can only exist if there's a way that we're supposed to live, a way that is right or wrong. What I'm trying to show you here is that the existence of evil and suffering is a problem not just for Christians. It's a problem for all of us. It simply cannot disprove the existence of God but it can actually push us towards there being a likelihood of an external moral guide of God. So if that's the case, what does Christianity have to say about why bad things happen to good people? Because let's be honest, it seems like they do, doesn't it? Well, firstly, Christianity doesn't try to hide that fact. 
Uh, we heard last week, different world religions push us to the point of, of removing from existence ourselves so we're not impacted like Buddhism does. Christianity doesn't try to hide the existence of suffering and evil. Now, throughout the Bible, it's clear that suffering exists because the world that we live in is broken. Have you ever felt that? Have you looked around at the world and gone, man, this isn't the way it's supposed to be? Well, the Bible would agree with you 100%. The world is broken. And beginning with mankind's refusal to let God be God in the Garden of Eden, suffering is the inevitable outcome of a world living at war with its creator. Like if, if someone makes a plane, right? That's a great thing. A plane is awesome. It beats walking. Can't really walk across water. Well, we can't anyway. It gets people from place to place and quite quickly. It's used for all sorts of good and humanitarian aid. But if you use a plane to fly it into a building, which was not the intent for the plane, you're not using it as it was intended to be and there's going to be a wreck of havoc that comes from it. So it is with a world with people living against the intent of its maker. It's going to blow up. It's going to cause pain. It's not going to be the way that the world is supposed to be. And we see the beginning of that in Genesis chapter 3. Read with me. And the Lord God said, the man has now become like one of us, knowing good and evil, or determining good and evil. He must not be allowed to reach out his hand and take also from the tree of life and eat and live forever. So the Lord God banished him from the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he'd been taken. That's the moment. The moment Adam and Eve reject the true and living God and think they can determine what is right and wrong, that death and pain and suffering come into the world. Because our first parents, Adam and Eve, rebelled against the God who made it. And from that point on, the world has been broken. It's a pale reflection of what it was created to be. Now, the fact that it's broken is pretty clear, right? But the cause of its brokenness often eludes us. Why is it so broken? We have so many reasons we put forward. If only we had better education. If only we we knew more about the way that the world worked. If only we had different people in leadership. There are so many ideas put forward about how to fix the world. But I want to put it to you. If you think about it, you and I do dumb things. I mean, who amongst us can say that we've never hurt someone? Right? It might not have been intentional. But we've all caused suffering in the lives of others. I might be causing you suffering right now. I'm going to sit here and listen to me at home, right? That might be the case. But here's the thing. If we want God to get rid of all the suffering in the world, we're actually asking him to get rid of you and me. Now, we do suffer. I never want to minimize that. But we also cause suffering ourselves, don't we? You know, that time we we lost our temper with someone, when we trod on someone to get where we wanted and push them down, when we ignored our kids because we're just too tired or busy, or when we gossip about that person at work or that uni colleague and that they hear about that, and when we said that awful thing to someone, or when we look at porn and perpetuate a slave and sex industry based on it. I don't know if you've thought much about it, but we cause a fair bit of suffering ourselves, don't we? So if we want God to get rid of all the suffering and evil in the world, we're actually asking him to get rid of us, to get rid of you and me. Now, recognizing that also helps us to recognize this, that bad things don't happen to good people. Bad things don't happen to good people. Why can I say that? Because no one is good. No one is without blame in causing suffering. 
Now, I know some people look better than others on the outside. They look like good citizens. But I want to do a thought experiment with you. Imagine for a moment in your mind what the best sailor in the world would look like. You know, the type of sailor that would look after the crew on, on, on the ship, the selfless sailor that kind of always eats last, that's brilliant with navigation and, and encourages the crew really well and is fantastic at getting to where he needs to be on time and being able to read the weather. You kind of picture him there on the deck of the boat and think, man, that is the perfect sailor. Have you got him? But imagine the camera then pans back to see the mast of the boat and it pans up and you see on the top of the mast of the boat a flag flying at the top. That flag isn't the the flag of a nation. It's a flag of a skull and crossbones. Suddenly you realize that all this good the sailor was doing on the deck of the boat, everything that seems so wholesome and right, was done in the promotion of evil, in rebellion against the true authority. And that's what we're like, even the best of us. We're serving ourselves. We're flying a pirate flag against the God who made us saying, I'm going to set the rules. I'm going to determine what is right and wrong and not listen to what God says. Is that not the heart of suffering? When people choose what is right in their own eyes? It's tantamount to being pirates, to staging a coup against the true authority. Oh, we might look good on the deck of the ship, but underneath We've turned our backs on the God who made us. We're living in rebellion against Him. Now, the real question isn't, why doesn't God put a stop to bad things happening to good people? But why doesn't God put a stop to us all? I was once at a conference with a well-known Christian preacher from America, and he recounted the events of September 11 when those three planes crashed, two into the, the, the buildings in New York and one into the Pentagon. He tells the story when a news reporter rang him up to get a comment on the events that had happened. And she asked him this very question. Why would God allow three planes of innocent people to fall out of the sky and kill them all? He said the answer kind of came to him in that moment uh, when he was in the interview with a clarity he hadn't expressed before. He said this. The question isn't why did God allow these particular planes full of innocent people to fall out of the sky? The question is why doesn't God make every plane fall out of the sky because not one person on them, myself included, is innocent. So there are no innocent people. We've all rejected the God who made us. We've all set up our own view of what is right and wrong and we all cause suffering in the lives of others. None of us are innocent. Now the question we ought to be asking is why hasn't God put an end to me and to you yet? I mean, if there is a God... Why hasn't he ended us? If we're causing suffering in the world, if we've rebelled against him, I deserve it. I don't deserve to live. I've rejected the God who who gives life and sustains me. I've set up my own rules at times and I cause suffering in the lives of others. And so do you. Why is my heart and yours still allowed to beat at this very moment? That's the question. But I'll tell you why. I'll tell you why suffering, suffering still exists. It's because God loves us. Because He's waiting for more people to see that they're part of the problem. And it's because He wants us to meet the solution, to meet Jesus and to trust Him. This is why Christians are so excited about Jesus. You see, God knows what it's like to suffer. In fact, He experienced the most intense suffering this world has ever seen when He willingly allowed his creation to nail him to a wooden cross, 
to whip him and beat him and watch him die a criminal's death on a Judean hillside 2,000 years ago. But it wasn't the physical pain that hurt the most. For the first time in the history of the universe, the relationship between God the Father and God the Son would be broken. For at that moment, the wrath and anger of the creator of the universe that had been stored up from the beginning to the end of time, that was kind of encompassing the right and just punishment that you and I deserve for turning our backs on God. At that moment on the cross, God's anger was being poured out on Jesus. Peter says this in 1 Peter 3.18, For Christ also suffered for sins, once for all, the righteous, that is the perfect one, for the unrighteous, that is us, that he might bring you to God. As Jesus let out that cry, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The penalty for the sins of the whole world, past, present and future, was on his shoulders. He took the penalty that was sufficient to cover the sin of the whole world. When I was a boy, I had a fascination with ants. I don't know, there's something weird about ants and they've got their little colonies and they crawl around and, and we lived on, on a small kind of hobby farm. And one of the things I loved doing was kind of stirring up the ants nest a bit. It's kind of a boy thing. If you're not a boy, you probably don't understand why. Maybe you don't understand why anyway. <laughs> but I'd stick sticks down the holes and kind of do skids over it on my bike and they'd come out and attack me. Yeah, I, I, was, I was a troublemaker for the ants. It wasn't the best thing to do. But one time, I remember I found my, my granddad's old magnifying glass and, and it was a big one. And I thought I'd give something I saw on a Roadrunner cartoon a go. That if you hold a magnifying glass at just the right light with the sun, all the sun's rays, the kind of power the sun comes down is focused on one little dot. All its energy is there on that spot. And if it's a big enough magnifying glass or a sunny enough day, it'll actually burn wherever that spot is focused. Would that be a bit of wood or your hand or an ant? That's exactly what I did. I tried to kind of follow the ants, but it was never quick enough for them. But as Jesus cried out those words over 2,000 years ago. It was like God was holding a massive magnifying glass, big enough to catch everything that everyone had ever done and, and said and thought against God from the beginning to the end of time. Far greater than the power of the sun that he created, far greater than all the suns in all the universe he created. As everything was captured in that giant magnifying glass of time, God's rightful anger and punishment towards humanity for turning their backs on him was focused directly and intensely on Jesus. He willingly stepped up and took the punishment for us and it burned. Friends, Jesus knows what it's like to suffer more than we will ever know and he did it for you and me. He did it so you and I don't have to. Jesus died to bring an end to suffering and evil for good. He, he took the punishment we deserve in our place. My guess is that there are many of us here today who are experiencing some kind of suffering right now. And for you, it can kind of seem like God just doesn't care. He's kind of sitting up there in the clouds, dishing out whatever he wants, sort of distant from creation. But what's clear from the Bible, what's clear from Jesus' words is that God cares so deeply for your pain and suffering that he's willing to face it with you and he's taken the ultimate suffering for you. And not because you or I are good people, quite the opposite. In fact, Paul says in Romans that God proves his own love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. 
Right? When we wanted nothing to do with him, through nothing that we've done, Jesus came and laid down his life for you. And he prayed, paid the price that you and I deserve for turning our backs on God. Friends, the historical event of the cross shows us so clearly that God loves you more than you can ever imagine. And he offers you and me forgiveness, life, meaning. The reality is that in this life, the Bible expects suffering and evil. For we live in a world that's broken and we're still broken people. We live in a world that has turned our backs on God. Jesus says in, in John 16, In this world you will have trouble, but take heart, I have overcome the world. Jesus says that because he promises another reality. Not only did he face death in our place, history records that Jesus rose from the dead, showing that death had been defeated. And here, Jesus offers you and me the ultimate solution to suffering. What is it? Life after death. A real life, a physical life, not some mystical mumbo jumbo in the sky with angels and fluffy clouds and Philadelphia cheese or something. No, a reversal of what happened in the garden in in Genesis 3. Life that lasts forever. Life in right relationship with God. Life with Jesus at the center as the king of our lives and and new hearts that won't turn our, 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 our lives against God, but will turn back to him. What that means is, that every horrible thing that we experience that has happened throughout human history will not only be undone and repaired, but will somehow make the eventual glory and joy of eternity and God's work even greater. Listen to what John, one of Jesus' closest friends said, as he had a picture of that day that Jesus comes back and puts things right, a kind of a forward looking of what it will be like. Revelation 21 verse 3. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Now the dwelling of God is with men, and he will live with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain. For the old order of things has passed away. He who is seated on the throne said, I'm making everything new. Then he said, write this down, for these words are trustworthy. And true. The God who made you and me is the God that will come back again and put things right. The Bible doesn't expect that life will be a breeze now. The world is still broken. We are still broken. In fact, the Bible says that until Jesus comes back and puts things right, we will suffer. But the Bible lays out for us such a hope, such an answer, that on the day Jesus comes back and we look back at all the sufferings we've experienced There'll be but a blimp on that final day, a tiny little bump on the road that lasts forever compared to the glory that will be ahead of us. Now, we don't know exactly why we suffer now. We don't see the events like we get shown with the life of Joseph. But we can know the God who knows why they happen. And he says, trust me, I died for you. (laughs) Friends, I want to read to you a letter from someone who knew Jesus personally. Someone who was there the day he cried out to his father, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? A letter that he wrote to you and to me. His name's Peter and this is what he says. Dear friends, don't be surprised 
when the fiery ordeal comes among you to test you as if something unusual were happening to you. Instead, rejoice as you share in the sufferings of Christ so that you may also rejoice with great joy when His glory is revealed. So then, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust themselves to a faithful creator while doing what is good. Christianity, it doesn't give us a nice, neat explanation for the ins and outs of of why we suffer and when we suffer. But it does provide the solution. Forgiveness. Relationship with a God who is in control. Hope and the offer of eternal life. Look, I want to plead with you today. Don't let bad things turn you away from a good God. Trust the one who knows what it's like to suffer more than any of us ever will. The one who came and suffered for us. Don't face a future of suffering God's wrath yourself. But today, maybe come to Jesus. Ask Him to forgive you and put Him at the center of your life as the one who died for you, as the one who will come back again, as the one who sets the best way to live, not in order to be good enough for Him, but because He's been good enough for God for us. I want to encourage you, come and experience the incredible joy of knowing that the sufferings that we go through are not wasted, that He's making us more and more like His Son and helping us to experience the great joy of knowing Jesus. Because in Jesus, our greatest suffering is extinguished. Now, if that's too much for you today to to come to Jesus, then why not think about a next step? Chat to someone who invited you along or um, fill out on your Connect card and let us know you'd like to take a next step or maybe come along to what we call Explaining Christianity. Uh, this event that we have that helps people to understand more. But whatever you do, don't hear this news today and continue suffering. Come and check out more of who Jesus is and how He answers our greatest needs. It'd be crazy, wouldn't it? To hear the solution to suffering, the one who's suffered for us, but to walk by and not take it up. When you join with me as we pray and ask God to help us to see Jesus as that final solution to suffering. Let's pray. Father God, we admit we haven't treated you as we ought to have treated you. So often we put ourselves at the center of our lives. We, we determine what's right and wrong rather than listen to the God who made us. At times, Lord, that can feel small, like we're some good sailor on the surface of a boat. But you know deep down, as we do, that we're living our own lives in rebellion against you. Please, Forgive us. Forgive us for not treating you as God. Today we ask you to help us to take that next step of of trusting the forgiveness you've given us. Thank you so much that Jesus took the suffering for us that we deserve and that we could stand forgiven because of him. We ask today, Lord, that by your spirit and through your word, you might move us more and more to trust your son to tell others the news about him and to live even through the ups and downs of life, through the hardships of suffering, knowing that you know what it's like to suffer and knowing that you've provided the answer to it in Jesus. We pray this in his great name. Amen. You've been listening to a sermon recording from Auckland EV. We hope you found it helpful. And if you'd like to find out more about Jesus or about church, we'd love to get in touch. So check out our website at aucklandev.co.nz for more details. Thanks for listening.